Hello and welcome back to How to PhD. This is the second part of our special episode with Professor Sebastian Kamba. Today, our interview dives into energy mapping, managing your inner voice, utilizing perfectionism and caring for your mental health with a very simple and easy to do technique. So we talked a lot about energy competence and things, and I guess the sort of the final potential piece of that puzzle is kind of understanding what you call sort of energy givers and suckers and trying to understand, you know, what gives you energy and what takes it away. And yeah, it'd be interesting to hear sort of to explain to listeners exactly about those concepts and how they can go about identifying those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess that's also one of the best sellers in the area of energy competence. The first one is probably that energy curve, understanding the different zones in a way. And then the second one is, is, is what we call like an energy map, where we map our energy givers and suckers. And actually that exercise uh, started because of a PhD student in the workshop. And she said, I have a colleague in my institute. Whenever I speak to him, even for two minutes, I'm completely drained afterwards. <laughs> because he's showing off with his papers and his conference mm -hmm. things. And every time afterwards, I feel like, if I may say this, I feel like shit. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not worth it. I'm, I'm not anywhere, etc. And And this is a real drainer and or like a sucker if you if you want. And, and that actually made me think about starting that kind of intervention also. And, and really increasing this, increasing our awareness about this. And but this also nicely connects to research on resilience. Um, because a, a resilient mindset, whether we are researchers or I think there's also other people than researchers, but, but especially also researchers, a resilient mindset would even in the toughest situation know where your energy comes from. Uh, it's even this example of, uh, of, of, a, of a person who has lost their wife and child in a car accident and was left with one other child. And appreciating and, and knowing that this one child was still there and, and getting energy from that. that that's what, what a resilient mindset is all about. But also understanding what are the energy suckers and, and, and what can I do about them, right? So what we do is we usually make a map and we put the people, <laughs> the activities, and the things that give us and take, either give energy or take them away. Or sometimes it's also both. So people can be like, again, maybe that colleague at the institute or maybe even supervisors, Hopefully, uh, oftentimes also family members. And I can also sing a song about that when I speak about my sister, who's a big giver and a big sucker at the same time. But maybe that's on another note. Um, and then also in terms of activities. And I usually I leave this very open. So some people make activities in general. Some like to focus just on the research and they say like, Okay, reading, I really, it's, a, it's actually a big sucker, the reading for me, right? So what we do is then we draw uh, um, colorful arrows. They can pick a color for givers and suckers, and we draw those arrows and also the intensity, so the, the, the depth or the, the width of, of those arrows. And then it becomes really powerful because then we not only understand the, the energy givers in our life and the energy suckers, but we also write next to the arrow, what is it that makes this a giver? Or what is it that makes this a sucker? To really, again, be more differentiated about this. Why is that? Because once I know more particularly, what is it that, in my example, for example, my biggest energy giver is, is skiing, for example. And so I said, what is it that makes skiing such a, such a giver? Well, it's being outdoors. It's being physically active. And I have to be in the moment. Otherwise, I make an accident. And so 
So I, I know it better and I can appreciate this, but it also equips me to understand what are other ways to have physical activities. So, so really in my portfolio of energy givers, I can be more fluent on designing those energy givers into my life. Right? And so I can again say, okay, how might I? So for example, I could say, oh, now in the summer I cannot ski. So I can be, oh, I'm frustrated about this. Okay, mm -hmm. how might I have that outdoor experience with having to be in the moment now in the summer? Right? Mm -hmm. Of course, could be skiing in the glacier if you wanted to, but it can also be whatever, skateboarding or yeah, even any other activity. And then with these energy suckers, then it becomes even more powerful because then you really understand what is it that makes that person or that activity the, the sucker. And one, one thing that really pops up quite often is, for example, in PhD research say, actually the writing is a sucker. Mm -hmm. And then the reasons why writing is a sucker are very, very different. For example, some people say, um, um, lots of people actually say, because I feel isolated. Right? And it's like, I feel like lonely. That, that, that's one side. Other people see I am uh, impatient. I don't see the results of my work too quickly. Right? If I make PowerPoint presentations for a lecture, I have in two hours, I have produced the entire set and I see it and it's, I'm going to use this. While sometimes in, in one day, I just write two sentences. Right? So there are two different reasons. And then it's also, and then I, we always um, say, um, okay, but then let's, let's try to find a way to reduce or eliminate the energy sucker. I'm always saying, okay, not eliminating people, so we're still trying to stay <laughs> legal here, right? But it, it's very deliberating and really also very healthy if people then say, okay, the writing is very lonely, and so we start, how might I make writing less lonely? Or how might I make writing more social? Or how might I make writing more fun? And then people get crazy about this. They're going to be like, okay, so I'm going to, even now in Corona times, for example, COVID times, people say, okay, so I'm going to write 45 minutes and then I'm going to engage in a quick Zoom call with my body, even somewhere around the world. And we briefly talk either about what I wrote or about something completely different, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to chunk it. I'm going to make it minimal social. I give, my small, I give myself a small reward, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just so deliberating for people first to understand more differentiated um, what it actually is that is the sucker and not be like, oh, writing sucks or today is not a good day. So that's, that's one thing. And the other thing is also using design thinking with how might I and ideation to, to overcome this, right? Mm -hmm. And so in this way, also building self-efficacy and being really uh, proactive about this. And that's very deliberating. And sometimes when we give five-day workshops, uh, at the African Doctor Academy, for example, at Stanford, and we asked people on Friday afternoon what was what had the most immediate effect. Is that most of the times is the energy givers and suckers, because mm. some people even delete people from their phones. You know, so like, oh, wow. oh, this, this this person is always talking just about herself or himself, and I'm always so kind and listening, but every time after the phone call, I'm completely drained, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and I wonder, I wonder what kind of uh, relationship, acquaintance, friendship that is. And some people go as, as far as this, uh, and some people just do smaller things, right? They, they, they then start say like, okay, every after working, or every after writing session of an hour or two, I give myself a small walk, so I can physically, but also mentally re-energize. And maybe I can manage this every day, but maybe not, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I, I try and see. And so this is really apparently helpful for people to better manage their energy. Uh, also on a micro level sometimes, that also nicely fits into that overarching energy curve 
and the different uh, zones that you have there. Yeah, some of my colleagues have even set up um, writing online sessions. So they're all writing at the same time, but they have their camera on. And just that, just um, someone else being there and also writing at the same time um, seems really to help them. So you mentioned, yeah, taking a break or a small doing a small video call after writing, but it could actually also be um, at the at the same time in an in a kind of online um, session. Um, I was just want to ask uh, with the energy sucker. So if you know there are certain people, and I think I noticed in my PhD, yeah, there. I think I had less to do <laughs> with people who are like bragging a lot about their research. Um, but um, I can imagine that, yeah, it can be difficult to do with it. But I think often also PhD students, because they feel like very stressed um, about everything, um, that they are kind of complaining a lot or like seeing a lot of the negatives or oh, this is not working and here slow down, I'm worried about that. And this can be quite infectious too, um, that, that I felt like I sometimes start as well thinking quite negatively or um, yeah, phrasing not noticing the progress that I met, but just communicating that maybe in a way also to protect yourself that you think um, if you were talking about yourself badly, other people will then encourage you to say, oh, it's not that bad. I'm sure you figure it out. And um, rather than being confident and saying, I can get this done, I made a little bit of progress. I still need to figure out. But I think it's how you talk about yourself a lot as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh... That also nicely connects to the whole notion of, of uh, creativity. Um, so, like for example, when you uh, when you have when you, when you um, what can I say? So, so one thing in this regards is is something that what's going on inside yourself also as in your inner voices, in a way. And uh, this is this is very powerful in general. But of course, also when it comes to this area, is what is the conversation you're having with yourself in a way, and. Um, even though what you just said earlier also connects to another nice one that I would probably say is also the question of what kind of social support are you looking for, mm -hmm. right? Because if you're in a diverging phase, you want these people to say yes and, and and everything is cool and all these kind of things, right? And maybe when you're converging, maybe you want other people that maybe are more critical and help you to actually make decisions and find criteria, for example. And then the other thing what you mentioned, yes, I think, it's the something something we do as well as the inner, map, mapping your inner voices. So I, I usually work with a um, with an Olympic gold medalist, oh. and uh, <laughs> yeah, and we uh, I, I have her as a guest speaker, and then asking her what can we as researchers learn from an athlete mm -hmm. uh, in terms of our productivity, our sanity, and all these kind of things. And she usually has three things, and uh, Maybe I'm going to just quickly say the first two and then also relate maybe to the third one. Uh, so she, she usually says, if you, so if what you can learn from a, from a professional athlete is one, if you want to be productive and healthy, you have to have hydration. So you have to stay hydrated. That's the first thing she said. Second thing, she says, you have to take regeneration as uh, important as performance to be sustainably performing. And then the third one, and maybe this connects now hopefully nicely to what you said earlier, the third thing she says is, you have to be your best friend. And you have to cultivate healthy self-talk. And she, she's a swimmer. And she, she says, you can have all the fans in the world and all the family and friends. And they cheer for you. They, they love you. They bake cakes for you. They do everything. But when you jump in the pool, you're all by yourself. 
And the same is true for researchers. I mean, we are unfortunately not jumping in the pool. Well, some of us may be depending on your research, but mm -hmm. most of us, I guess, sitting on a computer and typing, right? And then we are also by ourselves. And then the question is, how are you speaking to yourself in a way? And then depending on also what, what are your role models. So also there we do one intervention that we call mapping your inner voices. So you basically write down what your inner voices are and how to redesign them. And another one that I really love is called uh, Design Your Muse. That is all about, imagine you had a little muse on the shoulder. What would you like him or her to say to you to support you, to encourage you in a way? Right? And that could be something from, if, like, if you say you complain about it, like maybe to have other people to pet you and stuff. So maybe you have that person who's going to pet you, or some people also like to have a person on the shoulder who kicks their ass uh, in a way. If, if I may say this, or like a gentle, a gentle reminder of what's going on. Like, don't complain here. This is a big ego project. You wanted to do this, et cetera, et cetera. So you get the most interesting sentences that, uh, that people would like others to say to them in order to, to move, move themselves and, and to make progress. So in this way, you can also first increase your awareness of, of what is the inner conversation that's going on. And only if you have the awareness then you have the potential to also change this, right? And sometimes even, uh, I remember the, the last time I did this with summer school, we were even uh, using the notion of embodied cognition and people were using their bodies to represent the voices of the others. So if somebody says, I have that voice from my parents, they tell me I'm not good enough. Then for example, the other person asks you, how do you want me to present that voice? And we had one PhD student who was sitting and she wanted the other one to be like over, over her and representing that voice. And then finding not only a verbal, but also almost a physical way, like fighting with that voice to overcome it because it was not healthy for this person. So, yeah. So that you can see, you can get into very details uh, from, a, from a seemingly maybe superficial self-talk. You can go very deep. But if you talk about every professional athlete, cultivating healthy self-talk is at the very core of their performance. Even Federer was interviewed uh, last year, and he said he had a psychologist for two years in the beginning of his career, and it was all about uh, cultivating healthy self-talk. So I think it's, it should also, for this reason and maybe for others, legitimize why we as researchers can also uh, take good care of that. Yeah, I think that's really, um, yeah, I love that, that analogy of the swimming pool. I think that's really powerful there, you know, so you're how you speak. So you water, Aaron, as well, when he's yeah, in hydration. I, 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 took a, <laughs> I took a sip of water as the number one, number one tip, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, uh, I think the other point uh, that you mentioned there, which uh, particularly with the energy givers and suckers is around, you know, identifying why that aspect gives you that and it uh, takes it or gives it away and I think that really nice idea around using that to then identify other activities which could kind of replicate that which I think is is really really powerful so um, it would be good now to talk about slightly different but still related around sort of I think and this I think this is a particular topic which I think a lot of PhD students worry about and and might sort of play on their mind and certainly thinking about my PhD I sort of thought about this a lot is uh, the idea of perfectionism and and how do you go about managing this and the sort of benefits and disadvantages of being a perfectionist um, so especially how can how can someone overcome this now we, we talked a little bit about paper prototyping which could be one tool um, but there are some other things as well that students can use to sort of manage this perfectionist thinking 
Absolutely. I think perfectionism is really something that is, the first question you should ask yourself, in which ways is this helpful? So uh, perfectionism, when you do data analysis, is probably pretty helpful because you have to be very precise and correct. Otherwise, your research is not worth being published and being being uh, being read in a way, right? So always ask yourself, in terms of so probably also be friends with your perfectionism, and perfectionism is not necessarily a purely good or purely evil thing. But also here again, be differentiated about this. When is my perfectionism helpful? Maybe it is in that sense. Uh, and when is it more in the way? Right? When, when does it get in the way? It also nicely connects to that idea of the inner voices um, mm. where you might be thinking, if my perfectionism, you can also ask yourself, how is my perfectionism coming, coming along? How, how is this talking to me? For example, some people say, my perfectionist voice says, either you do it 150% or nothing. Right? And then you can say, say, say okay, well, again, 150% in some areas might make sense, but is perfectionism really helpful when I'm about to start something where I don't even know where I'm going? How can I be potentially perfect there? And probably perfectionism is almost like a evil when it's all about uh, the notion of dealing with uncertainty. Because asking yourself and your research to be perfect in times of uncertainty is not really helping there, right? So that's maybe some, probably the first thing I would ask myself. Don't be dichotomous as in, oh, I'm a perfectionist, I don't get anything done, this is bad, like good or bad, winning or losing, be more differentiated about this. Where is this gonna help me? And this again also actually nicely collects a lot of concepts. Again, the concept of diverging and, 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 uh, and converging. In diverging, perfectionism is probably not as good because we want to allow ourselves, diverging is all about creating ideas and options. So in, in this way, we allow ourselves to create more ideas and also say yes and we can also do it in this way. And then trying to be perfect is probably getting in the way. However, when it's coming to converging and converging is all about um, selecting ideas and options, then it's maybe better because then you, then you need that precision maybe to make a decision and to have the right criteria at hand, right? So in this way, again, see, see where it makes sense and where it's maybe not so, not so helpful. And then also, if you, for example, a lot of people, that's why I mentioned this, a lot of people are in the diverging phase, and then they're like, my perfectionist thing makes me stuck. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm so stuck, I don't even want to wake up in the morning, right? And then the question is again, okay, what is your perfectionist voice saying? If it says 150% or nothing, how might I react to that voice? Mm -hmm. How might I say something, do something, right? Sometimes people would say, okay, if, if my perfectionist voice says 150% or nothing, I could just answer by knowing the notion of prototyping and iterating. I can tell my inner voice and say, how about starting with 10% or 20 and take it from there, right? That's also an option. Or I know some students in my class, they even go, go way further and they kind of like want to beat up their perfectionist voice and they put on their favorite song and distract themselves from this and put themselves in a different mood to make that transition to then be less perfect and be okay about this, right? So there are various strategies about this. Another one that my students like to do is that they like to surround themselves with people who are actually not perfectionists. 
And by being surrounded by these people, said, just go for it. It's again, social support. So those people say, you know, I'm just going for it. You know, this morning I'm just going for it. So why don't you do the same? You know, it's almost like um, having somebody almost as a role model in that sense. And I even had one PhD student who said, I'm going deliberately even in, in surround myself with people who have to be anti-perfectionist because of their profession. So he was referring to some jazz musicians, for example, where he said if they want to play a new, or if they want to record a new track, they just go for it, they're jamming, they're seeing what happens, they have to engage, and this is very contagious in a very positive way, right? So that's also something you can do, like, again, shaping your environment and having that social support in a way. Thank you for bringing up the musical example, because <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, okay, you brought up jazz, which I think is an excellent example, because... Um, well, I, th I would say the classical musicians, um, they are like, uh, you have to be kind of in a perfectionist in the way that you have to perform 100% because like in auditions or in an orchestra, it is expected that you can't make mistakes. That is like the one thing you, you just be, especially I think because nowadays we are used to listening to recordings which can be edited. Um, so if you get a CD, it's perfect. So if we see a live performance, we expect the same kind of quality. Otherwise you will compare it against um, the recording that you have and say, oh, this is like worse than what I have on CD. Um, and it's a huge pressure, I think, for classical musicians. But um, yeah, I found it funny that you mentioned the jazz people because then um, I once had a project then where I was kind of the only classical musician that way and I was um, with a lot of um, jazz musicians they're completely different type of people they're much more relaxed they're much more chill they don't have this pressure of having to audition for orchestras they do their own thing and being with those people actually really helped me to like relax a little bit more it really uh, yeah just resonated with me when you said that yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also like, yeah, what, what is what is the legitimization there? So in some contexts, perfectionism is, is something that's very much demanded and asked for, right? And the classical music and jazz, maybe not as much. And it also tells you that it's you, but it's also maybe the environment you're in, both the people, but also the expectations from that community or that society in a way. So one thing could also be to think about Again, uh, who are the people I want to surround myself with more or less, right? And maybe who I want not as much in a, in a way. And also, where do I see myself uh, going into the PhD and also afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have even communities. I remember I was at a conference. It was a bit of an interesting combination of people. And I was more in the, on the business management side of things where people were dressing up very nicely, taking themselves very serious. And then I moved, I actually pretty randomly, I moved over and was in the wrong area, but it was the people of computer science. And I felt at, at that time, I felt like so much at ease because they said, it doesn't matter how you're dressed, uh, just your content and, and your thinking counts here in a way, right? So it's also maybe a good, and I'm glad to hear your experience there, and maybe also as a, as a refreshing uh, surprise for you to see other musicians to be in this way. So it could also be a way to think for ourselves what kind of community do I belong to at the moment? Micro community, my supervisor, my team, you know, I can even within the same institute, there can be so many different flavors, let's say. And do I feel okay with this? Maybe perfectionism, maybe other things. Or do I feel like I wanted to sneak in somewhere else to see if I feel more comfortable somewhere else? So I'm glad that you had within the domain of music and, and the practice of music had these different experiences. 
um, which is beautiful. Yeah, really, I think that's um, yeah one advantage of being at university is also that you get the access to many different other departments and other types of researchers. So that could be you know an important tip for any student who might be kind of dealing with this is eff- effectively find the jazz equivalent in uh, in research, right? And and try and meet <laughs> people who, who might be a bit more relaxed or have a different attitude about their work. Absolutely. I would also really, as, as you said, Aaron, I would really recommend people also to really to go and sneak into sessions, you know, and sometimes whether this is a physical, you see like maybe a conference happening or maybe a virtual thing, just sneeze in and see how people talk to each other. Even in Zoom calls, how are they dressed? Is there a very informal start? Is it very formal? And only by putting yourself in that experience, you have a better basis for making a decision. Yes. Because if you only think about assuming how things would be, then it's, it's, it's a different thing. So I would really encourage everyone also listening here, see if you can speak to somebody who is in an area you would like to go to, see if you can involve yourself in some micro events or whatever, because your own experience will always be a better decision support than any assumptions that you have about a field, about a university, about a person, etc. A nice kind of way to wrap this up, and I guess the sort of underlying um, theme between all of this is is effectively mental health. And we mentioned that word a couple of times during this conversation, and um, especially when we talked about resilience. Um, and I guess, Sebastian, I, mean, I guess it's um, this term, it's it's pretty crucial for students to recognize it and, and to be able to appreciate uh, what mental health means. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... So in mental health and also being resilient, so, so knowing how to deal with setbacks, for example, there is, unfortunately, a 2017 study showing that we as researchers are, have a tendency to have more mental health issues because we have often more isolation. We work on projects where we are the only sponsors and, and, and people trying to really get this thing through in a way. That's why I think it's really essential to, to take care of this. And I think what we have talked about also in terms of the energy, for example, the energy givers and the suckers, a resilient mindset, as I said, a resilient mindset has even in the, in the worst times has always an outlook for the good things happening in my life. In South Africa, we always call this count your blessings. Mm-hmm. So what you have and your energy givers is probably the activities, the things, the people where you can really count this. A resilient mindset would also always uh, understand what are the things that are not so going well, which one can I change and how to change this. So this could be the energy suckers, uh, for example, and how might I to actually go about them and change them. And then also thirdly, there was a beautiful uh, study about um, children from a very difficult background and they were going with them through their lifetime. And those children, so some students stayed in the same difficult environment and some made it to school and got a job. And the question was always, what is distinguishing those two groups? And the main thing was, and this is the third part of a resilient mindset, is social support. Mm -hmm. So those children who made it in a way, they had social support. And you can have social support, also think about this as a researcher, in at least two ways. One is the transactional social support. So people who know about a method, people who know and can help you in making progress in your research, but also think about emotional support. So people who have maybe no idea of what your research is all about and uh, actually just pat you and tell you uh, that you're nice and that you, it's going to be okay in these ways, right? So have an outlook for the positive things, 
know about the things that are maybe not so well, but have a strategy about this and have a social support uh, network in a way. And if there's maybe one intervention I, I would like to recommend to all of us, including myself actually as a reminder, but also to you guys and everyone is listening and speaking about the positive outlook, probably, and not only probably, but very sure, the, the intervention from positive psychology with the best return on investment or with the most effective way, it's called three good things. Three good things. And it basically asks you for just seven days in a row, write down, take five to ten minutes and write down three things that went well. Write down what happened, how it made you feel and why it made you feel this way. And the beauty, thing, the beauty of this is, and really I'm, I'm teaching this every week, the beauty of this is many, many studies have shown young people, old people, Africa, Asia, Europe, US, whatever, have shown if you do this only for seven days in a row, you have a significant increase in your well-being for at least six months, at least six months, and you have, in case you have it, you have a significant decrease in depressive symptoms, in case you would have them. So I've done this two times, and it's just beautiful also looking back into 21 episodes that went well after one week, and you also get a bit more of a positive outlook, almost searching for what could I write down tonight, right? And so this is really uh, helpful for PhD students, for, for researchers, and also everybody who's, who's, who's listening here and then hearing this, do this maybe for yourself, give it a try. And also maybe if you want, even forward this to other people in your research labs, in your communities, in your families, because really with, with low effort, you can really have a strong impact. So that will be my final recommendation such a simple thing to do uh it's free <laughs> you can just do it yourself um it won't take a lot of time but yeah it's that's incredible um that i found that it has such a long impact as well so i think you're definitely gonna gonna try that one <laughs> that's great yeah absolutely and share, share the go word. for it fantastic yeah yeah especially in these times i think it's like where we open in the mornings maybe the news and are overwhelmed with like all a lot of negative news at the moment the corona um, um pandemic as well but yeah just to go back and see the good things in your daily life absolutely and i think it's also it's as you, as you said when we are in a pandemic we have a tendency to have more attention and awareness for the negative things mm. and so the three good things is really a good way to reconnect to the positives even if a lot of things are not going well right remember or, or think about the guy who lost his wife and child maybe in a car accident still having an outlook for the good things that his other child was still there or even the small things and it's very much in line with Seneca the philosopher which I like a lot and he says human beings shouldn't be concerned too much about living long or living living long he said people, people should be more concerned about living wide as in aware what's going on And sometimes I hear people like, oh, my weeks and months are passing by. I'm not even realizing it. And the three good things is really also a nice way to just stop mm. and, and appreciate this. And if you, if you look back into these 21 episodes, you will definitely also live wide and live very aware and conscious of what's going on. And especially, as you said, in the pandemic, uh, I think that's very worthwhile to do.
with the mm. effort. I think that's a really mm. nice to live wide, not long. I think that's a really nice takeaway message. Uh, I think a friend of ours, they did this thing where they recorded one second of video every single day and they stitched it all together and, and they showed it to us. And there were so many things. We were actually in a number of their clips and we had completely forgotten. Um, so I think it's so powerful to just, you know, either do it through video or, yeah, as you said, just simply get a pen and paper and make note of those three things. Really powerful tool to to uh, yeah maintain that spirit and that that positivity and especially in these kind of difficult times. Sebastian, thank you so much for your time. Um, if the listeners want to find out more about you or get in touch, uh, where would you like us to send them? Yeah, absolutely. So regarding our program directly, you can go on creativityinresearch.org. This is where you see our work in Switzerland and Stanford, and you also see the book and everything. And otherwise, I guess we can also then share maybe my, my LinkedIn contact if people like, and uh, also my lifedesignlab.ch, uh, where we also do these things for researchers and even other people, because I guess there's also other people in the world. But I guess these were the most immediate ways to get in contact. And yeah, feel free to also just uh, write me a message. I'm happy to be in contact. And who knows, maybe see you at some point at the university in a summer school um, would be happy to do that. Great. And I think you mentioned a lot of resources as well. So your book and I remember at the beginning, we were saying there is um, some kind of resource where you can find out um, when your um, prime times are. So if you want to share that, we can also put that on the website yeah. and let people know about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's tons of things. So I can also put some additional readings uh, together, Fantastic. maybe that we can share uh, understanding more uh, about creativity and also the uh, energy that you mentioned. Absolutely. Great. Thank you very much, Sebastian. Thank you guys. Thank Thanks you for much. having me. It was really cool. So that brings an end to our interview episode. I love that point right at the end about living wide rather than long and do give it a shot with the three good things technique and let us know how you get on. So. That brings an end to our first ever collaborative episode. Uh, again, huge thank you to Professor Sebastian Kernbach for uh, collaborating with us. And um, we actually recorded this back in August. So huge thank you to him uh, for his patience uh, as we as we got out the episode uh, after after all these months. Do let us know what you think of it. And if you'd like to hear more of these kinds of episodes, Twitter uh, and Instagram and email are the ways to get in touch with us. So email contact at howtophd.show and Twitter and Instagram at, at howtophdshow. Next week, we're back to just me and Julia. Uh, and we're returning with the one that we promised last week, which was the diary of a PhD. Now, we want to emphasize this is not going to be about our research and showing how our research developed, but rather kind of our journey through the PhD and really to emphasize that it was not all kind of sunshine and rainbows and we'll kind of really go through each and, and quite talk quite openly about some of the really low points in the PhD and certainly the times when I really thought I was probably only a couple of steps away from quitting the PhD altogether uh, and how that all changed and, and the kind of lessons we learned from that. So thank you again for listening and we will see you all next time. <laughs>